Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an examination of the strongman problem the Philippines seems to have with the return of the Marcos kleptocracy in the form of the former dictator Sung Bongbong, who won in a landslide together with his vice president Sarah Duterte, the daughter of the current president who has brutally undermined democracy and human rights. Joining us is Lissandro Claudio, an intellectual and cultural historian of the Philippines who teaches South and South Asian studies at Berkeley and previously taught at the Ateneo de Manila University and the de La Salle University. He's the author of Liberalism in the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in 20th Century Philippines, and the forthcoming book, Empire of Austerity, The American Progressive Era and the Formation of Philippine Economic Thought, 1902-1986. And then we'll discuss today's warning from the head of U.S. intelligence that the Ukraine war is becoming a war of attrition with no end in sight, and that Putin will turn to more drastic means to achieve his objectives. Joining us is Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. He is the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. We will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Putin Unbound, How Repression at Home Presaged Belligerence Abroad, and how yesterday's Victory Day parade in Moscow did not come with Putin's call for full mobilization that many expected. Then finally we'll explore the need for a broader strategy to mobilize opposition to our reactionary Supreme Court beyond the issue of abortion, since Alito's opinion is the culmination of the Federalist's Leonard Leo's project to use the court system to hand over control of our country to those who have turned their backs on the principles of equality and pluralism to replace American democracy with an authoritarian regime run on ostensibly biblical principles. Joining us is Catherine Stewart, a journalist and author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on America's Children, and her latest book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. We will discuss her article at the New Republic, How Christian Nationalism Perverted the Judicial System and Gutted Our Rights. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lissandro Claudio, who's an intellectual and cultural historian of the Philippines, who teaches South and South Asian studies at Berkeley University and previously taught at Ateneo de Manila University and de La Salle University. He's the author of Liberalism in the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in 20th Century Philippines, and the forthcoming book, Empire of Austerity, The American Progressive Era and the Formation of Philippines Economic Thought, 1902-1986. to 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Lissandro Claudio. Happy to be here, Ian. How are you? Very well, thanks. And here in this country, uh, Lissandro, of course, we have a problem of struggle between democracy and autocracy with the Republican Party determined to create a one-party state through voter suppression. But it does seem that the struggle between autocracy and democracy in the Philippines has taken a big step backwards. It was bad enough having Duterte, but now that the Marcos son, Bongbong, has had such a resounding victory, how do you see that struggle? Yeah, um, President Rodrigo Duterte did not endorse anyone to succeed him. But rhetorically, his heir is really Ferdinand Marcos Jr. So he is a continuity candidate in many senses. On one level, he's a continuity candidate because he is a candidate who trades on this idea of discipline and stability. On another, on another level, on a foreign policy level, he's a continuity candidate because he is the candidate who wants to bring the Philippines closer to China the way Rodrigo Duterte did. And then he's also a continuity candidate because he doesn't want to prosecute. He has refused to say that he will prosecute Rodrigo. He will allow for the prosecution of Rodrigo Duterte in the International Criminal Court. But if Duterte hasn't endorsed him, the combination of having Duterte's daughter Sarah on the ticket as the vice president hasn't that brought together the Marcos fiefdom in the provinces of Ilocos Norte and Leyte in the north, and then Duterte's stronghold in Mindanao? And also, Effective- the use- go ahead. Effectively, yes. Um, so Sarah Duterte was initially being considered as a possible successor to Rodrigo Duterte. In fact, she was stopping the surveys. But then she decided, for reasons that are, are still unclear until today, she decided to slide down to the vice presidency to run with Fernand Marcos Jr. And she delivered Mindanao to Fernand Marcos. In fact, uh, when she decided to run with Fernand Marcos Jr., he saw a 15% bump in Mindanao. And, he, that, and his support has been most solid in Mindanao. But hasn't social media been really important in this campaign? We have to thank Mark Zuckerberg and the idea that social media liberates people to express themselves. It's actually become a very effective tool for despots. And it does seem to be that the social media campaign that Marcus has conducted has almost gone on for 10 years to completely rebrand the Marcos era as a golden age of crime-free spot prosperity instead of the brutal kleptocracy that it was. So yeah. that seems to be a big yeah. factor. Yeah, if you step back, though, even before social media, the Marcoses have been lying. So in 1965, when Ferdinand Marcos got elected into power, he made outrageous claims. So in his authorized biography, there's a claim there that he single-handedly saved Australia from the attack of, from the attacking Japanese because he delayed the southern movement of the Japanese army. So... This has been a lying family since the 60s, and so their, their social media lying is just an extension of the mismaking that they've been doing for decades. But why is it believed? Why do you have in the Philippines this strongman problem? Well, uh, we, have a per- we, have, we have had periodic strongman problems since the inception of the republic. So the first president of the Philippine Commonwealth, for example, Manuel Quezon, ran on a platform of party-less democracy. So there is definitely, there has always been significant appeal. But I think recently, in say the last 20, 30 years, the appeal of strongman rule is a function of the fact that many Filipinos feel they have given liberal democracy its chance and that this liberal democracy has failed the Philippines. And it's been decades since then 
And until now, we have the worst Gini coefficient. We're the most unequal country in Southeast Asia, one of the most unequal countries in the world. So people feel that despite the fact that there has been economic growth and form of democratic problems of Philippine politics have not been solved. And again, I'm speaking with Lissandra Claudia, who's an intellectual and cultural historian of the Philippines, who teaches South and South Asian studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and previously taught at Atenea de Milano University and the De La Salle University. And he's the author of Liberalism and the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in 20th Century Philippines, and the forthcoming book, Empire of Austerity, the American Progressive Era and the Formation of Philippine Economic Thought, 1902 to 1986. Well, but there seems to be a similarity. There was a book written some time ago, What's the Matter with Kansas, which was trying to explore why working-class Americans vote against their interests. So extending that to the Philippines, what is that? You, you just mentioned how it's the poorest country in Southeast, or one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia, and yet a part of this campaign that Marcos has successfully launched and led and been successful at is that a lot of these poor people in the Philippines believe that all this wealth that the Marcos has stole when they're in power up to between 10 and $15 billion, that it's hidden away in stashes of gold bullion and that this gold will be suddenly brought out when Marcos comes into, into office for the benefit of the Filipinos' people. So they literally believe that, yes, he stole all this money, but it's hidden away and it's going to be brought out for their benefit when he comes to power. How do people believe that kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, I, well, we're not one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. Actually, we're one of the wealthier countries in Southeast Asia, but we're one of the most unequal countries. And I Only. think that makes the inequality more acute. And so people perceive, so a lot of people, for example, perceive, see the, the rising economic figures, like, you know, 5%, 6% growth. And that's been consistent for almost decades now. And yet, people still see the stark difference between the rich and the poor. And so they're looking for a kind of leveler, and they and they feel like somebody like Ferdinand Marcos, who has stashed gold, might be able to level the playing field a little bit for them. So it's a, it's a fantasy, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantasy that is grounded on the frustrations of the everyday Filipino. And do you think that some of the problems that he may have will affect his rule? I mean, the fact that he's... He was charged in 1995 for unpaid taxes on on the Marcos estate. There's also a guilty verdict here in the United States for him being in contempt of court for failing to pay reparations to the victims of his father, Ferdinand Marcos's human rights violations. And I'm wondering whether that might affect whether or not he'll be able to, as a president of the Philippines, be able to come to the United States. I think he's not allowed to go to, to, go to the United States. He can't come here. And um, he needs to get clearance from a judge in Hawaii. So that is going to present a problem, actually, for the State Department because the duly elected president of the Philippines is somebody who has legal trouble in the United States. But if you zoom out, the bigger problem here is really that the Marcos family is a kleptocratic family. And with any kleptocratic family, there's a lot of caprice involved. So if you are a business or a crony business, you're close to the Marcoses, it's good times ahead. But if you're a business who, and you're in the outs with the Marcos, I think Marcos says the best thing for you to do is to move out of the Philippines. So there is the actual threat of possible capital of, of, of possible of capital possibly leaving the Philippines as a result of the caprice of the Marcoses. So in other words, wealthy 
Filipinos don't trust this guy? He could he could steal from them as well as stealing from everybody else. I mean, when Fernand Marcos Senior was president, he shut down businesses of his enemies. He took them over and he distributed them to its, to to his cronies. So even today, just today, for example, the Philippine stock market opened, and the businesses that were perceived as close to the Marcos family they got the bump, and uh, the businesses that were perceived to be opposed to the Marcos family, like, for example, certain media businesses, um, their stock value plummeted today. So what happened to the lead of the opposition? She, Lenny Robredo, she declared her candidacy late. The anti-Marcos vote was divided amongst nine candidates, which wasn't helpful. So Mm -hmm. what explains why she did so poorly? And uh, I'm still mystified as to why Marcos did so well, but... uh, Let's start with at least with Vice President Lenny Robredo did so poorly. The the, the vice president twenty five percent for Vice President Lenny Robredo is not bad when you consider the forces arrayed against her. So she is against not just she was against the Marcos family, the, but the Marcos family was in alliance with the Duterte family, the Arroyo family, um, the family of President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, and the Estrada family, the family of former President Joseph Estrada. And also, it's very, and also the, the gossip in Manila is that the Chinese prefer Ferdinand Marcos Jr. So this is the most formidable political bloc ever in post-authoritarian Philippines. And for Lenny Robredo to dent that with like 25, 25% of the vote, it's remarkable as far as I'm concerned. So then the big issue here, which you've alluded to a couple of times, Lisandro, is China, right? Duterte's move towards China in spite of China capturing and confiscating Filipino islands off its uh, western coast. And then you've got, it's almost like what happened recently in the Solomons, where the Chinese essentially bribe just one leader and they take over the place. So Marcos, what's Marcos going to do in terms of this? And First of all, let me, could you explain to us why they want to be a part of the Chinese orbit as opposed to a democratic orbit. Well, I think it's it's what it's very clear that for politicians who trade in graft, like for example the Arroyo family, that it's convenient to work with the Chinese. So, for example, President Arroyo, who actually, to my mind, delivered this president this, this election to Fernand Marcos Jr. by forging the alliance between the Dutertes and the Marcoses. She benefited from a multi-million dollar deal between the Chinese um, internet company ZTE and the Philippine government during her administration. So I feel like for these people who are used to the kind of wheeling dealing, to, to kind of wheeling dealing, they prefer dealing with these Chinese companies. And also, of course, um, on, on an ideological level, of course, there are some resonances between the kind of strongman rule that people like Duterte, Marcos, and Arroyo are promoting, and the, the kind of strongman image being promoted by Xi Jinping in China. But how does this contrast with the feelings of the Philippine people? I thought they were relatively pro-Western and, and wanted democracy yeah. and the rule of law. Yeah, um, so the Filipino people are confused about what they really want. On the one hand, um, a, 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 a a survey showed that the that Filipinos love the United States more than Americans love the United States. But on the other hand, around 75, uh, 65 to 70 percent of Filipinos believe that they want to experiment with um, systems of governance other than democracy. So the kind of fascinate the, the love of the West 
doesn't necessarily translate into a love for liberal democracy in the Philippines. But I was reading at the time there was a dispute between the Philippines and China over some of the islands that the Chinese were confiscating. And the attitude in China was that Philippines exports bananas to China and the Chinese were saying they, they're our bananas. So there's a kind mm-hmm. of aggressive colonialism going on with the Chinese. Uh, are the Filipinos aware? Do they really want to be embraced by this giant economic powerhouse next door that's clearly, if they're invited in, they're, they're going to stay? I, I don't think so. I don't think they're as enamored with China as Duterte and Marcos are. And I think that's always been one of the weaknesses of the Duterte administration. And if Fernand Marcos continues to bring the country closer to China, then that's going to be a weakness also. To what extent it's an Achilles heel, I don't know. But I think Filipinos are, are willing to overlook that because what they want above, all, uh, above everything else is this kind of image of stability and this idea of discipline. The discipline is really the most common key word that voters of Marcos and Duterte use. And is that why they they accepted the idea of cleaning up the streets by murdering drug dealers and drug users? Right, yes, absolutely. Um, so the Duterte's war on drugs continues to enjoy majority support, and yet the majority of people who support the war on drugs also believe that extrajudicial killings are happening. In other words, Filipinos are, endorsing, are knowingly endorsing murder. So... What do you think uh, the U.S., I mean, that, is the U.S. aware of this? As I just mentioned, the Solomons, the idea that that's, that's become a big issue in the Australian elections because the uh, conservative government in Australia dropped the ball there. And is the U.S. and Australia and other Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, alarmed by the idea that the new leader, the new president, Hong Wong Marcos, could move Philippines even closer to China than Duterte has? Yeah, I, apart from a couple of statements from certain hawkish Republicans, like Senator Marco Rubio, for example, he was concerned about Duterte's increasing closeness to China. The foreign policy establishment and the legislature in the United States has not said much about this problem. And I think this is a grave error in terms of U- U.S. foreign policy because the crucible for the crucible for the kind of struggle between the West and China, I think, is still going to be. Southeast Asia. So they do this at the peril, not just of U.S. foreign policy interests, but at the peril of global democracy. Well, this is an extraordinary story, don't you think? This goes much beyond the headlines about the elections yesterday in the Philippines. And I'm astounded that there's not more focus on this. Yeah, me too. I I would remind our listeners that, at least in the framing of President George W. Bush, the Philippines is a major non-NATO ally because of the mutual defense treaty between the United States and the Philippines. So it is just just a tier below NATO. And a kind of disregard of the U.S. foreign policy establishment to the fate of a major non-NATO ally is it, shameful as far as I'm concerned. And you don't see any way for the opposition to... I mean, I guess... The media there is pretty much slanted in a pro-Marcos Duterte way. I mean, he didn't even participate in debates, did he? I mean, he... he yeah. Was... Not only did he not participate in debates, he did not... He, he, it was very rare for him to grant interviews to the media. And, and, you know, even in the streets, when 
when the media would, would try to engage him in like an ambush interview, he'd just completely ignore him. This is a person who doesn't see himself as accountable to any mainstream institution. So he's not accountable to mainstream historiography. That's why he whitewashes the history of his father. He's not accountable to the mainstream media. He only talks to bloggers and TikTok stars who are who are um, who are friendly to him. And so you already see just based on this campaign the the kind of accountability that this person is willing to take on. Well, again, it's astounding that it's gotten this far. I mean, uh, we have one senator in this in this country who's responsible for Biden's agenda being stalled, and that's Senator Sinema, and she refuses to talk to the press. But you know, uh-huh. I, f- I find that very troubling. But the idea that you have a president who who won't talk to the press and won't do interviews and has this sort of hidden agenda, it feels like we're in for a rough period in that part of the world, are we not? We are in for a rough period, and the problem is we don't really know exactly how rough it's going to be because Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Ran, ran a very empty campaign. He ran a campaign based on the slogan of unity, which is the most vacuous campaign slogan ever. And a colleague of mine, Nicole Curato, says that the campaign was actually a campaign of toxic positivity. He did not want to engage in anything negative. All he told people was that we're going to have a bright tomorrow and that we should celebrate that bright tomorrow together. Well, Lissandra, Claudio, I thank you very much for joining us here today, and we should uh, stay in touch. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lissandra Claudio, who's an intellectual and cultural historian of the Philippines who teaches South and South Asian studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and previously taught at the Ateneo de Melilla University and the de La Salle University. He's the author of Liberalism and the Post-Colony, Thinking the State in the 21st Century Philippines, and the forthcoming book, Empire of Austerity, the American Progressive Era and the Formation of Philippine Economic Thought, 1902 to 1986. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining today's warning from the head of U.S. intelligence that the Ukraine war is becoming a war of attrition with no end in sight and that Putin will turn to more drastic means to achieve his objectives. Ang kamay nilang yung ilaw At ang nanay at tatay mo'y Di malaman ang gagawin Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Daniel Treisman, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin Unbound, How Repression at Home Presaged Belligerence Abroad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Treisman. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there was a lot of expectation yesterday, May the 9th, Victory Day, that the former Soviet Union, Russia, celebrating the end of uh, World War II and the great contribution the Soviet Union made to that victory over Hitler. The 
expectation was, of course, that Putin was going to make a bold announcement or fire a nuclear weapon or call for a full mobilization. That didn't happen. I looked at the video, uh, Daniel, and I must say he looked a little feeble. He, he had a, grabbed a blanket to cover his legs and he seemed to walk with a bit of a limp. But that was about all I could take away from it. A lot of people have been wondering why they cancelled the flyover to due to bad weather, although the sky was clear. So what was your takeaway? Well, it was a surprisingly low-key speech. Of course, there, there was uh, uh, still plenty of uh, angry words about the Nazis that they're supposedly fighting in Ukraine uh, and uh, praise for the heroic troops that are out there in uh, in Donbass and elsewhere fighting back and plenty of hostility towards NATO. But it was more notable for what he didn't say. Uh, he didn't uh, declare victory. Uh, as you said, he didn't call up uh, reserves. He didn't announce a major mobilization. Uh, he didn't annex the Donbass uh, republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, which some people thought he was going to do, uh, or even uh, the Kherson uh, region. Uh, some people thought he was going to announce that that had become the Kherson People's Republic. So none of that happened. And what was striking was, you know, that all these expectations uh, that had been raised turned out to be wrong. I think the best explanation is that uh, that he just is is concerned that there'd be a lot of pushback, that people are happy enough to hear that great uh, Russian armed forces are fighting Nazism abroad, but they don't want to do it themselves. And so if he tries to call up uh, hundreds of thousands of army reserves, uh, people will be alarmed and the war might not remain as popular uh, as it has remained so far. So I think he's he's nervous about that. Uh, and perhaps he's even nervous that if he called up reserves, some of them might not turn up, uh, that the mobilization, if he announced it, uh, would not happen or else would happen in a very uh, rough and ready, partial way. So that's the best uh, interpretation that I could come up with. And what did you make of today's warnings from in testimony for the Congress from the Director of National Intelligence that you know, the Ukraine war is becoming a war of nutrition with no end in sight and that Putin will turn to more drastic means to achieve his objectives in, in Ukraine? Well, it's always worrying when you hear uh, somebody who is privy to classified information uh, making these, this kind of statement uh, because one has to suspect it's based on things that we just don't know about. The war does seem to be grinding down uh, to a kind of bloody stalemate with the two sides contesting a front that keeps moving a little bit here and there. Um, the Russians still seem eager to take the whole of the south coast. This land bridge from Donetsk to Crimea, and then also the part which would connect Crimea all the way to the border with Moldova and the Transnistria uh, separatist republic there. So they seem to be fighting over, over that as well as just the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, but it's sort of settling to something closer to trench warfare. The idea that uh, Putin could escalate out of frustration with that is, is certainly alarming. And uh, for me, what's, what makes it difficult is I, I just don't know what that's based on. So we have to take the intelligence 
seriously and uh, hope that that's only one possibility uh, we need to need to take into account, but not something that's likely to happen. Well, Putin has pretty much destabilized Ukraine since 2014. And I mean, I don't see him ending this thing. What, why would he end it short of victory? Because he could always, as long as it keeps festering, doesn't that serve his interests, whether or not he reaches whatever his goals are in this case? Um, you know, it's hard to know because he thought he could topple the government quickly and uh, install a puppet. But what's his fallback then? And what do you think? I mean, President Biden at a fundraising function last night said that he doesn't think Putin knows how to end this. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this isn't going to end. Uh, the reality is Putin, uh, I think, strongly believes that he's in a war with the West or a conflict with the West anyway, uh, that that is not going to go away uh, at any point, that the, the West, especially the US and, uh, and NATO uh, with it, are determined to undermine him uh, and, uh, and weaken Russia. And therefore, if he agrees to some uh, armistice or, or some temporary agreement or peace, uh, he's going to view it as exactly that, temporary. And uh, a line of division, a new line of division in, in Ukraine, I think, would just yield uh, some, uh, perhaps it might be called differently, but some new iteration of the Minsk Accords. So we've had Minsk I and Minsk II, maybe there'll be Minsk III uh, or Minsk IV, but he won't uh, view that as any uh, real commitment on his part, uh, just cover for uh, rebuilding his, his uh, armed forces, uh, regrouping uh, so that he can uh, attack again at a time of his choosing. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article of Foreign Affairs, Putin Unbound, Our Repression at Home, Presaged belligerence abroad. So given your work in studying the Russian, the Soviet and uh, Russian economy, where is this expectation that he's going to cry uncle because his economy is tanking? Is there any evidence that that's going to happen or what would the timeline be before that would kind of reach him to the point where he may have to reconsider his ambitions in Ukraine? I think it's complicated. I think he's not going to cry uncle because uh, we put some sanctions on him, definitely not in the short run. Um, one one objective of the sanctions is simply to weaken the war machine, uh, so to make it harder to, to replenish the, the stocks of weapons, uh, to produce more missiles and so on, um, and to uh, just complicate the task of uh, providing the logistics for this invasion. So that's that's one uh, one objective. But I think the other objective is is to, over time, and this could take months, maybe even longer, uh, create an environment within Russia where discontent and uh, and uh, disapproval of Putin uh, gradually increases. And I expect it to be focused more on 
just the straightforward economic uh, problems than on uh, attitudes towards the war per se. Uh, so I think sanctions over time, as they lead to unemployment and, and falling real wages and higher inflation and so on, could create an environment in which Putin's popularity really falls and that starts to, to, to reduce his effectiveness as a leader, making it uh, harder for him to get his orders implemented and uh, perhaps creating a process uh, in which the top leadership of the regime gets weaker and weaker uh, until some sort of regime change happens. Of course, that may sound like an optimistic scenario and there's no guarantees whatsoever. But, but uh, uh, I think it's more plausible that we could see some kind of meltdown of the regime under the pressure of uh, economic sanctions and uh, the pressures of the war, casualties, and maybe other crises, uh, which could all uh, confront the Kremlin simultaneously. I think that's more plausible than that, for instance, we could see any kind of organized conspiracy or coup taking place within the Kremlin, at least uh, in the foreseeable future. But it looks like the Europeans have, have come together to cut off Russian oil. They, they have obviously, they can't cut off gas, although they've said that they will eventually or even soon. But cutting off oil, I think, what is it, one third of, of Russia's oil goes to Europe? And I know the Hungarians, uh, Viktor Orban, of course, is quite pro-Putin. He's been resisting, but apparently I think Macron has talked him into going along with the rest of Europe. Yeah, uh, Viktor Orban is, usually has his price. Uh, so it's right. understandable that he would, uh, he would make difficulties, um, but he may... Uh, indeed, be ready to negotiate something. You uh, mean make make difficulties in order to get shake people down for an reward? Exactly. He's under various pressures from the EU, and uh, so when the EU wants something from him, uh, he will certainly uh, make his position clear. So, but uh, Hungary and the Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia are, are particularly vulnerable. They they're dependent on on Russian oil. So there's been a lot of talk of maybe them getting uh, exceptions, uh, workarounds, uh, or having a longer timeline to reduce uh, the import of Russian oil. But uh, yeah, I think the rest of Europe is readier to go along with uh, sanctions on oil. And it's just really a matter of uh, the timeline and the details uh, of how this is uh, how this is brought in. Uh, including some accommodations to the uh, countries that are likely to be hurt the most by it. And Hungary and Slovakia, I think the issue is more that their refineries are designed to refine Russian oil and they have to find a substitute for Russian oil. American oil is a, is a light crude, so mm -hmm. that's apparently one of the issues involved. But just in the last few minutes, let's talk about the economy of Ukraine, which we don't talk about a lot because there's all this expectation that the Russian economy is going to be is being punished and will show signs of collapse. But surely the Ukraine doesn't have an economy anymore, does it? I mean, you got eight million people have been displaced, they're landlocked, their exports are cut off, there's a blockade 
both they've lost the Sea of Azov and they the Black Sea, where they exported their grain, etc., is under a blockade from the Russian Navy. So how are they surviving in any way? Are they just simply dependent upon Western aid? Well, the war has been absolutely devastating, uh, as, as we can see from all the, the videos. Um, just today, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development predicted that uh, GDP per capita would fall by 30% this year in uh, in Ukraine. And uh, it raises the question, what about the other 70%? How are they managing to, to keep producing that? It's very a very, very severe uh, economic crisis. At the height of the Great Depression, the U.S. GDP fell by about a third, so it's comparable to, to, to that. Um, and I think the Ukrainians do desperately depend on the help of, of uh, their European neighbors and, uh, and the U.S. And, and the world community. And it's absolutely crucial if, if the aggression from Russia is to be defeated, that uh, the uh, free world provide not just weapons, but also economic help to the Ukrainians who are fighting back so uh, so heroically, both at the front and uh, logistically within the country, uh, providing the backup for both the troops and keeping the economy running and basic uh, services uh, that the population so desperately needs at this time. So I think Western aid is absolutely crucial. So just in closing then, if this is going to be a long war, is Putin counting on NATO kind of giving up and getting tired of it and uh, the Europeans' cohesion, fracturing, etc.? Is he counting yeah. on that? I mean, who's, who's going to give up, do you think, here, if this is a, a long, painful war? Yeah, well, I think he's certainly hoping for that. And looking at past history, uh, he has some reason to to be hopeful. Uh, after Crimea, the sanctions imposed by the West were relatively mild, although at the time people said they were very tough. And uh, almost immediately, there are pressures uh, from places like Germany, uh, Italy, uh, to somehow normalize the situation. Uh, Germany so far has, uh, or initially uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, made uh, very dramatic uh, commitments to increase uh, the German defense budget and to provide military aid even to Ukraine against the tradition of, of Germany since the war. Um, but uh, there are also voices uh, throughout uh, continental Europe uh, who are saying that we need to avoid getting into World War III, uh, we need to somehow normalize, we need to get negotiations going as though Russia at this point was ready to negotiate. So I think Putin is hoping that those voices will get louder and he will uh, try to uh, make that happen to the extent it's possible by holding out, uh, you know, a pseudo pseudo uh, olive branch to uh, uh, in pretending that he's ready to negotiate, even if he isn't. Um, I think, you know, the, the usual suspects are going to be the ones that uh, that might uh, that might respond to that sort of initiative. Uh, Hungary, obviously, uh, Serb Serbia, Yugoslavia, and possibly Germany and Italy. But Western cohesion has been quite amazing initially, and has been stronger than I think anybody expected so far. Uh, 
so I hope uh, that will continue and that uh, the seriousness of the situation will will uh, lead the Europeans uh, to uh, to maintain that common front against uh, against this aggression. Well, Daniel Treisman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman, who's a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, including The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia, and Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Putin Unbound, How Repression at Home presaged belligerence abroad. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the need for a broader strategy to mobilize opposition to our reactionary Supreme Court beyond the issue of abortion. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Stewart, a journalist whose recent work has appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on America's Children, and the latest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And she has an article at The New Republic, How Christian Nationalism Perverted the Judicial System and Gutted Our Rights. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Stewart. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be in conversation with you today. Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine. And uh, your article points out that the battle now against the Supreme Court's pending decision, I don't think there's much doubt that the, what was it, 98-page opinion of Justice Alito will actually become the law. So assuming that's the case, which I think is a pretty safe assumption, the mobilization against it, which is we're starting to see signs of it, um, people were actually demonstrating at the homes of Alito yesterday along with the Chief Justice and Kavanaugh. But I take it that you're saying is that the bigger fight is the fight to stop this takeover of the Supreme Court itself and the changes that they plan to make to American life. This is just an opening salvo, is it not, the abortion issue? Any right to privacy is going to be undone. Well, we're seeing the consequence of decades of planning by religious right legal strategists to stack the court with ideologues. This has been a longtime aim of movement leaders, uh, people like Leonard Leo, who said in 2017, I'd like to see the courts um, unrecognizable and Trump is the change we've been waiting for. We have to remember that uh, Trump appointed three Supreme Court justices in his run-up to um, 2016 and 2020. He kept reminding religious right leaders that um, he was going to appoint pro-life judges. Uh, of course, we know that their agenda goes well beyond the issue uh, of abortion, but uh, uh you know, he has delivered to the movement what they want, and they are incredibly determined 
to uh, ban abortion throughout America. Um, and even um, some uh, factions of the movement want to ban some forms of birth control. Um, these positions are grotesquely unpopular with most Americans, but that doesn't seem to trouble many of these leaders. Uh, Leonard Leo himself uh, recognized many years ago that he couldn't push a he, he he couldn't wait for the people to sort of uh, bring about the changes that he wanted. So he figured he'd do it by focusing on on the courts by stacking the courts. Well, indeed, Leonard Leo's former media relations director Tom Carter, you quote him in your article, Catherine. Quote. Leonard Leo figured out 20 years ago conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception, conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed, so they needed to stack the courts. So, again, this is really what the battle should be focused on, not just on the narrow issue of abortion, as important as that is to many people. Do you think that it can be broadened out, that people can understand that this is just the opening wedge to undo rights of uh, contraception, gay marriage, interracial marriage, etc., along with this activist court's determination to favor the plutocrats that fund them, like the Koch brothers, that fund the dark money that Leonard Leo has been spreading around. They want to undo all government regulation and anything to do with the public health, like OSHA, the CDC, the Environmental Protection Agency. So that is a much bigger issue, is it not? And is there, is there I, I take it, the point of your article is to sort of try to get the public to focus on that. Yeah, you know, I think that we have to recognize that um, this is a radicalized court and the sort of uh, supposed constitutional reason, reasonings that they drawn is really just a way of depriving disfavored groups of their individual rights. You know, it's like sort of um, regulation for thee, but not for me. So, well, so they want um, to deprive um, disfavored groups of their rights while dispensing privileges to the groups with the supposedly correct viewpoints. And I think it would be foolish for anyone to imagine that the process will come to an end with the loss of abortion rights, as terrible as that will be. I think once, uh, if this uh, draft opinion is the a final opinion of a majority of American women of childbearing age, some, I think it's 33 million American women will be residing in states without uh, the right to abortion. Um, their right to abortion will be either eliminated or so severely curtailed that it will be virtually impossible to obtain. And then, um, but the, the movement is very determined not to stop there. Uh, I attend every year the National Pro-Life Summit. It's a gathering of key religious right strategists, uh, anti-abortion strategists, uh, affiliated politicians, and and um, and some of the you know folks that they work with. And Christian Hawkins said um, that you know they want to introduce a constitutional amendment to end abortion nationwide. That's their goal. But she said it will take some time to set up. I spoke also with uh, a representative of the Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the sort of a legal, you know, legal advocacy group of the uh, religious right. It's um, just kind of a legal juggernaut. They have a, an annual operating budget of over uh, $50 million every year. And he said pretty much the same thing. He said, our goal is to 
I'm paraphrasing here, he said our goal is to introduce a constitutional amendment, you know, to have that, uh, you know, constitutional amendment, but that will take some time to set up. So this is their aim. This is an, an incredibly radical movement. Um, many of the folks at the uh, event I attended um, believe, you know, promote the idea that that uh, abortion should be prohibited from the moment of fertilization, which would actually outlaw many forms of birth control, including some IUDs, some birth control pills, and um, emergency contraception, of course, which they choose to uh, characterize as chemical abortion. But um, this is just a, a radical, religiously driven agenda, and it, it violates not only human rights, but also the religious rights of uh, a majority of Americans. And again, I'm speaking with Catherine Stewart, who's a journalist whose recent work has appeared at the New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children, and her latest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And she also has an article at The New Republic, How Christian Nationalism Perverted the Judicial System and Gutted Our Rights. So just focusing on the draft opinion of Alito's, a 98-page draft opinion, you point out, of course, that it goes back into history all the way back to the 13th century and even includes a 17th century jurist who presided over the execution of two witches and who also denied the possibility of marital rape. And the whole point of Alito's arguments basically come down to, in essence, that women should be deprived of our rights in the future because we have often been deprived of our rights in the past. And that that is a a sort of mirror of the Dred Scott decision, which in spite of the Declaration of Independence saying that all men are created equal, black people had no rights under the law for the simple reason that they had never been treated in the past as if they did have such rights. So is that the, the logic? If if you did, if you didn't have the rights in the past, uh, then you don't have them in the future. This is just a take for is a, a page from the authoritarian playbook. Um, it's an authoritarian argument for a certain kind of group rights against individual rights. And uh, Justice Alito claims that these supposed group rights can trump the most essential individual rights. The whole point of individual rights is that um, being enshrined as a, as in the Constitution is that they're not supposed to be up for grabs in the next election cycle or because a bunch of political appointees and uh, judicial activists um, disagree with you. I mean, Americans have many, you know, differing op- and opinions about abortion, um, he says, but um, so he says it's that their right through their elected legislatures to decide the question. But here's the thing. First of all, a majority of Americans, as we know, support some form of abortion law, um, uh, a- abortion access. And um, the uh, uh, the other thing is, you know, a lot of these laws are also being rammed through gerrymandered state legislatures. So the will of the people has been perverted. But uh, again, the whole point of these kind of constitutionally guaranteed individual rights is that they aren't up for grabs with the next election cycle. So so Alito's argument is flawed on both counts. Well, but the essential point you're making is that the whole point of constitutional rights and the guarantee that they give to individual rights, that they should not be subject to the whims of elections and politics. That's what 
the amendments to the Constitution are largely about, aren't they? That's and the true. Bill of Rights. That's absolutely true. But this is a part of the sort of uh, agenda of religious nationalists. They want to deprive the rights of groups of whom with of whom they disapprove, of sort of disfavored groups. Uh, but that's just half of it. The other half of what they want to do is uh, dispense privileges to uh, so-called right-thinking individuals and groups. So, for instance, you know, in this uh, draft decision, Alito insists that only those rights specifically enumerated in the Constitution deserve protection. But um, he says, you know, the Constitution doesn't mention abortion, so there's non no constitutional right to abortion. But this court doesn't have any trouble whatsoever in finding rights that are not um, named in the Constitution when it serves the interests of those of whom they wish to privilege. So for instance, the Constitution nowhere specifies that parents have a right to draw on public funds to send their kids to religious schools, right? But this court has claimed that the Constitution, in fact, does say that parents have a right to them. They basically pulled it out of the teeth of the uh, Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which, um, which has the best piece of real estate in our Constitution. It's the first clause of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. This is a clause that has been used to sort of uh, explain the necessity of the separation of church and state. So they, they're like, well, that's constitutional, but it's not mentioned in the Constitution. They also say that you know, they found in, in the Constitution the right to own an unregistered handgun. But, but our Constitution says nothing about the right to own an unregistered handgun. I mean, there are so many other rights, you know, the, the idea that corporations have religious rights and can deny the birth control in their coverage and in their insurance plans to employees. Somehow this you know, radical Supreme Court has found justifications for these types of things, but have, has not... Uh, found in uh, the Constitution a right to bodily autonomy um, and the pursuit, you know, the ability to control one's body and one's destiny. But, you know, there is something that the Constitution does enumerate, and that is a right to vote. And that's in the 15th Amendment. But since that right conflicts, apparently, with the right of the court's favored groups to gerrymander their way into the legislatures they prefer, they have issued rulings that seem to weaken the right to vote and, and disrespect the right of people to have their votes counted. Well, they took away, in fact, it was Chief Justice Roberts who took away Article 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That's right. And that's had, you can see what, what effects that had. It's just manifestly clear. In fact, the, the laws in these states that had required pre-clearance has suddenly overnight changed. And it's ever since then, and it, you can see voter restriction in all of those states. The restrictions uh, that are insane, like the idea, you know, introducing laws that it's illegal to bring somebody waiting in line, you know, to vote or to bring them a chair so that they can sit down. Now, just think about that. In, right. in, well, think about the fact that they shouldn't be waiting in line in the first place. Exactly. No, no other democracy has people lining up for blocks. This, this is just you know, ridiculous and, and in, unacceptable. I know in, in, in districts that are disproportionately comprised of people of color, we still have race-based gerrymandering in our country, um, which is a, a, a violation of, of human rights and a, the right to vote. And yet this appears to be a court that is completely okay with that. So there's a kind of, um, you know, they, they sort of spin a web of 
a, a web of respectability, a sort of gossamer web when they want to um, deprive women of the right to control our bodies and our destiny and deprive people whose votes they don't like of their their right to have their votes fairly counted. But um, they they find all these other rights for for folks of whom they approve. So given that Leonard Leo, who's put five of these six ultra-conservative judges on the Supreme Court, that his methodology was that he believed that the American public corrupted, by, I'm just quoting from the article, corrupted by the values of liberal, liberalism would never willingly comply with the moral medicine needed to save America. So he concluded that the way forward was to take over the courts and then they could fund and these right-thinking justices into the judiciary and in particular the Supreme Court and they would be able to thus reverse this tide of immoral liberalism. So given that that's the strategy, it's as clear as day and they've been successful, what's the counter-strategy? I think about the words of David Barton, one of the key strategists of uh, the Christian nationalist movement. And he said, arm yourself with the mentality of a distance runner, not a sprinter. The, the fact that the, 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 the consequences that we're seeing in our courts today, that's a result of decades of investment in strategy, legal strategy, legal advocacy. Um, this is the um, sort of far-right uh, activist picking the right cases to bring to the right courts, um, helping people understanding that their vote is about more than uh, the front runner. It's about judges. You know, they know if they can get the judiciary, they can get the culture. And, you know, in the short term, we are going to bear the consequences of that. But we have to help people understand that our democracy is worth saving, our rights are worth defending. And um, when it comes to elections, you know, all that matters is, is, is who turns out on election day. And people have to understand that, you know, you might not, might not like something they said or did, but which judges are they going to appoint? Are they going to appoint people who have integrity, who are honest, who are free of corruption, and who um, believe in um, uh, equality and dignity uh, and the principles that represent the best of the American promise? Well, Catherine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Stewart, who's a journalist whose recent work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights, A Stealth Assault on America's Children, and latest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And she also has an article, At the New Republic, How Christian Nationalism Perverted the Judicial System and Gutted Our Rights. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice is saying something to me And the other big